Today we'll be in James's letter. If you want to turn there, right after Hebrews, near the end of the New Testament, after Hebrews, and, and if you're turning, you get to Revelation, you went too far. So come back to the left a little bit. I've been drawn to the epistle of James lately, and in particular, the end of the first chapter, which admonishes us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And I've been wrestling with how to approach this and trying to pray and ask the Lord, do you want me to just preach on that verse, which I do sometimes, and then... You all know me, I like to try to understand the context, and as I got into this whole chapter and then the whole letter, I thought, I don't know how I can preach that verse without just looking at the whole thing. And so this might be another series of messages. Um, we'll see. But, the, like I said, the verse that really has impacted me is be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. That's the 22nd verse, the first chapter of James. I want that to marinate in your minds and work in your hearts as we go into this message today and and maybe another Sunday or two as well. What does it mean to be doers of the word and not hearers only? And also this warning that if you just listen to the word and don't do anything with it, you may be deceiving yourself. And I I think that is a real danger for many of us because often I come, I'll just speak for myself, often I come to church, even though I'm the preacher, and God burdens me to preach a message and I listen and I feel strengthened and I feel motivated, I feel uplifted, and then sometimes I, I leave and I wonder, what did I actually do with it this week? James reminds us, be doers of the Word. How do you be doers of the Word? I want us to let the Holy Spirit show us what that means, because He he knows much better than I do. I'm going to try to tell you what I feel like I should, but He knows. And So, let's start at the beginning of James's letter. I'm just going to go through maybe the first chapter today and see where we go. I want to pray. As we begin, Holy Spirit, Lord, I come before you today knowing that I stand in need of you. Lord, I feel like I struggle more when you put a message on my heart that involves a lot of teaching than just a burden for exhortation or encouragement. And so today, let me not worry about my own weakness or my own ability, but focus on you. And Lord, open the word that it might be alive Help us understand what you want us to, that we might become doers of the word and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at chapter 1, to me it looks like there's 10 sections in just the first chapter. And we'll look at those. This letter, this epistle, we use the word epistle, it just means letter. And... The outline or the way it's structured and what it does is quite a bit different than Paul's letters. Paul is the one we really think about when we think about New Testament epistles. This is different. And as you read through it, he jumps from one um, instruction or admonition right to another thing. It's, it, it reads 
like Old Testament wisdom literature. It makes you think of Solomon or the Proverbs as you read. Notice that. A lot of times the other letters when we read, he's beginning a point and continuing it throughout the letter just like we would. This one is a, a group of teachings that apply to God's people. And it applies to us today. So the first section, the first part, the first verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So let's pause on, look at this. Who was James? Most likely, with almost all certainty, this was the brother of Jesus. And he introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. What a beautiful picture. I read that and it stuck in my heart. That no matter how important of a family we come from or who we're related to or who you know, we're supposed to be the servant of the Most High, the servant of Jesus Christ and ultimately servants of each other. Amen. That's what Jesus modeled. And that's what James is... He's putting himself in this position. He's writing this letter as a servant of God's people and he specifies who he's writing to. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. What does that mean? This was a time most likely uh, around the mid-40s A.D., so after Jesus had passed away, after the congregations that he established, he established his ecclesia, congregations started spreading, many have been established, there's been some persecution, there's some problems, the word of God is spreading. This is the context of James's writing. And unlike many of Paul's letters who were written to a sp- specific congregation, like the congregation at Philippi or the congregation at Ephesus, James is writing to all of the Hebrew Christians all around that region. This is a letter that would have been circulated, passed around. You remember, they didn't have a printing press. They didn't have, it wasn't put in pamphlet form. It, whatever letter went around was handwritten. So there weren't lots of copies, and one person would read it and give it to another, and house to house, probably. To all of the tribes, all of the Hebrews, all of the people of God who know Him, greeting. One verse greeting, and then He jumps right into it. It's almost surprising. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That would be like me in our modern language getting up here. It would be like this. Hello everybody, good to see you. Consider yourself lucky when your life is hard. That, that's how serious he is about getting to this point. He says, you're blessed when your life is full of trials. And he's not right, it applies to us by extension, but he's not talking about, as we say, first world problems. He's talking about like big deal things. He's talking about real persecution. He's talking about the government might come and rip one part of your family away from another. He's talking about some of you might die soon for standing for the truth. He's talking about some of you are going to be in prison. And he says, count it all joy. 
That's an interesting phrasing. He's not saying pretend you're happy. He's saying the truth is, however difficult that trial might be, however hard that suffering might be, however trying this season of life might be, the truth is, when you can look back on it later and see with eyes that God gives, you'll see that it gave you joy. Have any of you you've experienced glimpses of that? Some of you older ones? You know what am I... Sometimes the hardest things that you go through, God gives you the most perspective of Him, which gives you joy. This isn't some kind of pump you up thing. It's just true. And so, again, to put it in our language of, of today... and. I want it, the, the older people know this because you've lived it, but to the, the younger people, I want you to hear this. Don't shy away from difficult things. Don't be afraid of hard things. Don't be afraid of emotional pain. Don't be afraid to love people even when it hurts. And I'm not talking about romantic relationships where you're... You lose your mind. In the, um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really caring about people. It takes a lot out of you. Don't be afraid of that. And don't be afraid if people don't like you. because you, you know, sometimes people in the world will be mean to you or attack you just because of what's in your heart. Just because you have the goodness of God. And I've noticed the world picks on people who are especially gentle and kind. It, it makes fun of them. Because it's not like the world. And here's what I'm saying. You one day will be able to look back and say, that was hard, I didn't understand it, but now it produces joy. Because it helped me know God better. And there is no greater joy for a hungry child of God than to know his father better. You don't recognize it in the moment. That's why he says, count it all joy. Yeah. Now, he continues. This is, this is, there's three verses in this section 2. Verse 2, 3, and 4. He's explaining what he means. That was verse 2. Verse 3. Why can you count it joy when you fall into all manner of trials? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Some of my family's here. I, I try to resist uh, any kind of genetic determinism in my thought process. But man, I got that Hackett blood in me. I'm a lot like my grandfather was. He was, he died impatient. He was waiting for God to produce promises that, that he thought they should have happened. And now he understands, but he didn't understand now. Patience is hard for me. But you know what? God does not work on our timeline. He made me wait for my beautiful wife way longer than I thought I should have. And that's only one example from my life. Y'all have examples from your own life. And you know what? Now I look back on that trying decade plus of my life. A decade's a long time when you're in your 20s. And something that you think should happen is not happening. 
I was single so long that just about everybody I knew was trying to find somebody for me. My dear sister Jemima, this touched my heart. I don't think I ever said thank you. She said one time years ago, she said, I will pray and fast for you that God will give you a wife. She meant it. I've had older sisters who are passed on and gone on to the Lord. Same praying. Well, they didn't get to see it. And, and I thought I would never see it. And I'm, this, I'm not trying to make this about me. I'm telling you, something in my life was, that was very difficult. I thought I'd be married in my 20s and have several kids already. And it wasn't until my 30s that I even met who the Lord had for me. And now I'm old and we have one kid. But I'm working on getting younger. Because I'm realizing God's timeline is not mine. We can serve Him with the vibrance and the force of youth later in life. He can do that. Like He did with Moses. He had all of His vitality as an old man. And God can do that for us. I'm not trying to get off track. I'm trying to tell you this is one thing from my own life that God now I look back and I count it joy. But I sure didn't in my 20s and early 30s. That wasn't joyful. Sometimes it was treacherous. Young men, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes it was depressing. Sometimes it was discouraging. But God brought about His plan in His time. That's only one thing from my life. I could spend the whole day talking about other things. But I'll move on because you all have your own experiences that God has confirmed and taught you and shown you that you can now count it joy. He says, the trying of your faith worketh patience. Guess what? That lesson has taught me just a little bit that I can wait on the Lord. That I might not understand it at the time, that it might not make sense, but it's worth it. Because He knows even if I don't. He says, The trying of your faith worketh patience. Then he says, this is all part of the same section on trials. He says, But let patience have her perfect work. In other words, allow patience to do the complete work that God intended it to do. What is patience supposed to do in the life of a child of God? It is supposed to make you perfect and entire, lacking nothing, wanting nothing. This, we use the word now in, in our language, perfect, to mean moral uh, uprightness. But what it means here, the Greek word teleos, it means completion. Patience is the only way you're going to become a complete and mature child of God. And the only way patience is going to develop in your life is if you go through trials. So let me make it really clear to the young people again because the older ones have already lived it. I want to encourage you. Don't be afraid of hard things because if you don't have hard things, you're going to stay a baby. And you don't want to stay a baby. You want to be a mature, powerful a man or woman of God. You want to be able to be used by Him. Now, I love my, I talk about her a lot. I love my little girl and she's wonderful. But she doesn't need to stay that way. For 10 or 15 years, she, she can't even 
reach all the way to doorknobs. She can't drive. She can't do things that people need to do to function in life. And trials or tests or difficulties are what allows us to develop this uh, patience which helps us become complete people. He says, let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting, lacking nothing. We're in the uh, letter of James. For the one who just came in, and good to see you, brother. Glad you're here. Now, that is the conclusion of the second part of this letter. The third part, as I broke it down, is verses 6 through 8. Verses 5 through 8. Apologize. He talks about trials, he talks about faith, he talks about your growth as a child of God. Then, this is where this, this format is a lot like wisdom literature from the Old Testament. He jumps right into something else. I told you the truth about that, now boom, let me tell you this truth. If any of you lack wisdom, does that apply to anybody here? Man, it applies to me. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and shall be given him. If any of you lack wisdom, how many of you, well, you don't, have, don't answer this, but sometimes we lack something, we realize a deficiency, we realize a weakness, and we're afraid to ask God to help with that. But if any of you lack wisdom, he's saying it so clearly. If you're not as wise as you want to be, ask God to make you wise. And then he says, he gives to everyone liberally. Now this isn't a political thing. He's saying he gives you more than you need. He gives you with abundance. Sometimes we pray with reservation because we're afraid that we might not get what we really want. And then what we're hoping for, not really expecting, but hoping for, is that God would just give us enough of what we're praying for. James is teaching us, and we need to be reminded, God will give you more than you ask for. Now unto Him who is able to give us abundantly more than we ask or think, to Him be glory. We can ask God to make us wise and expect Him to, and He'll give us more than we expected. And upbraid is not. In other words, He doesn't, God doesn't give you a hard time. The heart of God toward us was demonstrated in the man Jesus Christ. And all the silly and ridiculous and dumb things that His disciples asked Him, He didn't upbraid them. He wasn't mean to them about it. Sometimes I think he chuckled. Sometimes he gave him a direct answer like, have you been with me so long and you still don't know this? But he wasn't, he didn't give him a hard time. Any person who comes to God searching truthfully for truth, he'll give it to him and he's not going to give you a hard time about it. And then James says, if you like, he says, it shall be given him. Wow. Sixth verse. Now, he has just given us a very definite promise. If you lack something, ask God and it will be given to you. Now, he's clarifying it. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. 
Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Wow. This is two absolute extremes. James tells us if we have a particular lack, we can come to God, we can ask for it, and He'll give it to us. But then he says, if you have any wavering about whether you're going to get it, you're not going to get anything. Sometimes we pray, and we get disappointed that our prayer wasn't answered. And oftentimes people blame God for that, as if it were His fault. This human nature, that's a lot of people claim to be atheists because God didn't answer something they asked for at some time in their life when they were young and they say, well, he must not be real. I've talked to people who that happened to. And James is telling us clearly, if you ask God to do something and you waver and you're not really sure, and he says you're like a wave of the sea driven with the wind. You just go this way, that way. No stability, no certainty. He says... Let not that man think he'll receive anything. If you want God to do something for you, if you want Him to answer your prayer, you better believe He can. Now, some religious people, I think, overemphasize the idea of belief. But there is an element of of belief or trust or faith in God. If you don't believe He can do something you're not going to pray like you really want it. It was said I, sometime, maybe in the service or in conversation after service last week, how often do we ask God for something and not really think He can do it? In other words, it would be better to not even ask if you're going to pray and not expect it. Let not that man think that he'll receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, that scripture, I think, apply. that's axiomatic, the 8th verse. I've known some double-minded people and everything they did was unstable. But I think even those of us who are trying to serve the Lord, when our faith is divided, when our attention to God is compromised, we, we can become double-minded in that moment, which produces instability. And here's what I'm trying to tell you with that. Not that you can produce faith on your own. Here's what I'm saying. You can trust God to be faithful. You can trust Him. You can ask with absolute confidence and certainty, and God will give it if it's what you need, if it's in His will. Sometimes He may not answer what you thought He should have said, and you'll look back later and say, okay, I understand now. And that only comes with the wisdom of and patience of time. That's three, three out of the ten sections of the first chapter. The fourth one, he, he comes to another point. And again, this letter is to all of the Jewish Christians scattered around that region. So it, it, this is teachings that apply to everybody. Ninth verse, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. 
This is a beautiful picture. Sometimes the world, um, it grades people by station in life, by socioeconomic status. In some countries, this is still very visible. The caste system in India, for example, you know where you're from, what family you're from, and you're there. And we, in many ways, are not in that, but in some ways we are. Here's, here's the point James is making. However low your station in life might be, however difficult your life might be, however much struggles you might have had naturally, financially, economically, or in families, or whatever life might have dealt you, as people say, you can rejoice knowing that God has exalted you to the place of being His son or daughter, the brother of Jesus Christ. You can rejoice in that. It doesn't matter where I started out. I'm on equal footing with everybody here. Isn't that beautiful? And then he he couples this with the exact opposite. A lot of times there's a counterbalance. He says, the rich in that he's made low. That seems like a funny thing to rejoice in. But some people come from a station in life where they've always gotten what they need and things have always been available and easier. That person, he says, you can actually rejoice in that now you've been allowed to be equal with everybody else. Jesus did that for us. It's a beautiful picture. He says, the flower of the grass, he shall soon pass away. The sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, the flower falls, the grace... Listen, I love this phrasing. This is why I'm reading from King James instead of a different translation. It's so memorable in this passage. The grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Sometimes we look at people with extreme wealth and there's a sense of maybe envy or jealousy or, or like they can do things I could never do or... or They have opportunities. Sometimes even with sincere hearts as Christians, we think, if God could just save somebody like that, what they could do for His cause. (laughs) We think that way. Imagine what a wealthy man could do to help this congregate. God doesn't need somebody like that. He can do it with whatever He wants. Here's why I said we don't have to think that way. And the people who are in that category, not that we should think worse of them, but they're going to die just like everybody else. Everything they have is going to get whisked away just like everybody else. There's no security in it. That's the point. Do not trust in uncertain riches. That's the idea. The fifth section... He comes back to this. This is what he opened with. Now he comes back to it. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now this image here, in a Greek culture, you know, they're the ones that um, invented the Olympic Games. And this this is the picture. This is like the Apostle Paul when he talked about running... My race, when we talk about pressing toward the prize, this is the image. A person who is doing their absolute best to finish this race that is set before them. And this crown of life is like the laurel leaves that they put 
on their head. This isn't a crown of, of um, king being a king or reigning or ruling. This is the crown that you receive when you're finished running your race. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he's tried, he'll receive the crown of life. Let me put this in, in a more simple, clear way. At the end of your life, after all the trials, after all the difficulties, after all the pain, if you tried to serve the Lord, He's going to be able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, and then give you that crown. Now, what is the crown? The crown of life. Isn't that beautiful? Now, that doesn't mean you're running so that you might obtain salvation, but this is all part and parcel. God has saved you, which equips you and gives you the desire to run for Him. To receive the crown that He's prepared for them that love Him. Thirteenth verse clarifies this idea of temptation. He says, Let no man say when he's tempted or when he goes through trials, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This passage is a great warning. First of all, when uh, evil opportunities come before you, you can be assured that God never put it there. This is what he's teaching. God never tempts you to sin, just to see if you will. God didn't put the serpent in the garden. He didn't, he didn't place that sinful opportunity before those people. This is what James is saying for Adam and Eve. He's saying when, when an opportunity to sin, when a great temptation comes before you, God didn't do it. And this again is a warning. I've, I think sometimes when you're, when you're young, you think it's okay to flirt with a dangerous situation to see if God's going to help you through it. Or, or maybe He brought this, maybe this relationship I shouldn't really be in. Or maybe this job I shouldn't really be in. Or whatever the case that, that maybe God gave this to me to see if I can withstand it. God never uses sin, ever, to do anything with His people. You need to be certain of this. And He's not going to put you in a situation that is going to tempt you to fall. It's different allowing you to go through trials or for Him to test you. The testing is not about trying to get you to sin. The testing is about strengthening your character, your Christian um, ability to serve Him. That's what it's about. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does He tempt any man. Now listen to this progression. Every person, every one of you, every one of us is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. You got temptation in your life, it came from your own lust. Sometimes we blame the devil. And sometimes maybe the enemy's working, maybe the, the adversary is there. But sometimes we blame the enemy for things that are just our own lust. 
When you look inside your own heart, if you're honest, sometimes maybe the enemy doesn't have to be as active distracting you as you think, because you've got enough distractions in here yourself. At least I do. He says, every person is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. You can be tempted and not sin. Do you hear that? You can be tempted and not sin. He says, drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it reaches the end, brings forth death. The first step is being drawn away by your own lust, being enticed. I'm thankful my mama raised me to avoid being around enticing situations. You might be able to stand up to it. What if one day you don't? Why even risk it? Sometimes the scars are too, too big. Like It will ruin your life if you go down that path. This is what he said. If you don't want to die, I mean, the conclusion of sin is death. And if you don't want to die, back up. I, I almost hate to mention this, but there have been people that I've known who seem to know the Lord and seem to be serving Him and seem to be spiritual people who broke up their families to, to be with some other family. I've seen this more than once. And, and I asked one of them when it happened. I'd grown up seeing this woman in church and seeing her serve the Lord. She's my mama's age. And, and I, I said, I've always wondered, like, when did you know you were going down this path? I just asked her. And she said, I know what I did is wrong, basically. But I chose to do it anyway because of how I felt in the situation. I, basically, I, I knew it wasn't right, but I chose to do it. Isn't that interesting? And what that showed me and what these situations when people fall, I, I had another, a wise brother tell me, he said, the, the enemy is always trying to seduce us. What happened to him could happen to me. He was talking about a man who fell into terrible sin. What happened to him could happen. Here's what I'm trying to tell you, brothers and sisters, especially young people. Don't even start down that path because you might not be able to stop. The, the easiest place to stop is before you ever take the step. Don't get in a compromising situation if you don't know if you can withstand it. And don't, don't try to find out. You, that's not what God does. Sin only brings death. The 16th verse, and you might break this up differently, but to me, this 16th verse, just, it's just an admonition in itself. Do not err, my beloved brethren. What is he I mean, this is... A teaching alone. Know the truth and don't turn away from it. Don't be in error. Don't get caught up in anything that's different than what Jesus lived and what the apostles taught. Don't err. We could say a lot about that, but I'll, I'll move on to what I would call the seventh section. This one's beautiful. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Wow. I preached the last couple Sundays that, that we need to get away from a mindset of being afraid of success or blessing. Everything good comes from God. 
everything. If you have something good in your life, it's because of the favor of God. So you don't have to worry about, am I going to be able to be humble if, if I get that blessing? That If God gave it to you, He's going to help you. And this is what he's saying. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. I love that image of God that He's, he's not just um, our Father, but He's the Father of lights. What does light do? It illuminates the truth. It shows reality for what it is. It pushes out the darkness. Jesus was the light that people who wanted Him were drawn to and people who didn't want Him were pushed away from. Light. God is the Father of all light. In the beginning, He spoke, let there be light. And He still lives in that light that nobody can approach and yet He allows us to experience a glimpse of it with Him. The Father of lights, with whom is no variable, neither shadow of turning. In, in the Greek, I remember studying that years ago. We don't use a double negative in English. In Greek, you do, to emphasize a point. And the way this would read is, In Him there is not no darkness. It's emphasized. And it sounds funny to us because of how our language is, but that language, it's... There is not darkness, there's no dark. Or we might say, how we would word it, there is not even a hint of darkness. There is no darkness whatsoever. God is only light. He is only good. He is only blessing. The next one. Of His own will... He begot us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Just this four words at the beginning of verse 18 of His own will. If we, if we understand even a glimpse of that, it would lift the burden of performance from us. You know, so many children of God still labor under this false burden that they have to make themselves acceptable to God. I've got to be good enough. I've got to be nice enough. I've got to please. Of His own will, He begot us. He chose you because He chose to. He chose you because He chose to. Take that burden of performance off. You don't have to be good enough. He made you good enough. I think about this, and I, I probably said it recently. One of my favorite passages says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. How many times do we look at other people and condemn them and we have a, maybe a judgmental attitude or we think they're not where they should be or they're not doing what they should or this, this, this. Do you know God doesn't look at you like that? Right. Ever. Say, well, those He loves, He chastens. Yeah, He does. But He doesn't look at you with condemnation. Do you know why? Because He can't see you without looking at Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If that doesn't motivate us to serve Him, strengthen us to serve Him, nothing will. 
Because it's not out of guilt. It's out of, wow, God loves me no matter what, and He's never going to condemn me. If you know God, you can't do anything to be in His condemnation. That's not a license to sin. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's what the Apostle Paul said, because some people think that. But that's just spiritual immaturity. You get a little bit older, you serve the Lord a little bit longer, and you realize the way God loves you is what compels you to serve Him. Oh, He loves me so much, why wouldn't I want to serve Him? There's no more guilt, there's no more, I've got to please this mean father up there. There's, what can I do that will make my daddy happy? I love that. Of his own will he begot us. How did he, how did he begat, by the way, as we were born? How were we born? By the word of truth. That's why later in this passage, and I may get to it today, I feel like I'm near the end of the time, but that's why he says, be doers of the word. This word of God, the logos, it's not just information. It's not just words between leather pages. It's not just, oh yeah, that's some nice stories or nice teachings. It's not just a self-help book. The word of truth is how you became a child of God. The Logos. And we're not just talking about the written word. We're talking about the eternal, living, powerful word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the Logos. You were born... Through Jesus, the Word. And this Word of truth is why it's so important that we try to speak the truth. Why did He uh, birth us with His Word of His own will? Why? 18th verse. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Or in other words, that we should be an example. You know how I think of this? God called you and saved you and made you His child to show the world what is possible with him that's what he's saying and then if you're honest you could say if he could save me he could save you next section wherefore or in other words in light of all these things my beloved brethren let every one of you let every man be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath I don't know about y'all, but sometimes in my own flesh, I'm slow to hear, swift to speak, swift to wrath. I, I, I don't always show it, because that's, that's part of trying to be what we should. But sometimes that flare of wrath comes up inside me before I even hear what's really happening. There have been situations in my life, and by the grace of God, I'm, I'm not a brawler, I'm not a fighter. I think I would have been if he didn't save me young, because I feel there's something in there. But there have been times where I was close to it, and then I realized what made me mad wasn't even what happened. Y'all ever experienced that? Sometimes it's something that really matters. I mean, like we're talking about the Bible, and I'm ready to fight, and then, then I realize the guy's actually agreeing with me with different words. And then I feel like, oh my goodness, what a mess I am. 
Let, this is why this is such practical, and this is, this is one of the parallels to the wisdom literature of Solomon. Let everyone be swift to hear. The most important thing we can hear is the voice of God. His truth and His word. But also each other. Listen. There's a reason. This is so simple, but there's a reason God gave you two ears and one mouth. If we just listened twice as much as we talked, we'd be a lot better off, wouldn't we? Listen. And don't just listen, hear. Sometimes we listen, but we don't hear what's actually happening. Sometimes it could be comical, but sometimes it's tragic. We think something happened that didn't. That's why we have to really listen and be slow to speak. Sometimes, I don't know if you all struggle with this, but one of the things I've tried to work on, they, they teach you this in the business world, when somebody's talking, don't think about what you're going to say in response to what they're saying. Just listen to what they're saying. That's hard. Sometimes somebody's three words into a sentence and my brain's already responding to what they're going to say 30 seconds from now. And then I'm thinking about, when are they going to pause long enough for me to get it? Listen. Slow to speak and slow to wrath. I don't think a person can be slow to wrath if they're not slow to speak. If you can get that command over your tongue, which we see later, nobody has complete control of their tongue. But we better try. If you can start to bridle your tongue, you're going to be able to bridle your spirit. And that's part of being a mature child of God. I won't be a whole lot longer, but I do feel like I need to do a few more. Slow, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. That is a verse I speak to myself so many times. Now, there's, there's a place for righteous indignation. And we're in a culture where people think if you're not nice, you're not being Christian. And that's not what Scripture teaches. You can stand and not seem nice and still be a proper man or woman of God. But... Know this, your wrath, your anger never produces God's righteousness. And I'm saying that to myself first. God doesn't need you to be mad to accomplish anything. Wherefore, 21st verse, here's the next section. The, uh, I guess the 8th section. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And we don't use words like that anymore. What's he saying? Have, have any of y'all ever had jobs or done jobs where you got really dirty? And the first thing you want to do when you get... Or maybe some of you athletes, you got your clothes just sweaty. and st Y'all ever been in a high school football locker room? It smells. Or if you're... When the gentleman came and worked on my septic tank, had to get down in there and get dirty. You want to get home, what do you want to do? Strip off all those filthy clothes. 
a lot of times when I'm working in the summer, if I'm out mowing or working at a construction site or something, I come home, I take off all my clothes outside. Because I don't want to take any of that in. This is what he's talking about. Lay apart, strip it off, get rid of it. All filthiness. All sin, all dirtiness. Because the people of God are supposed to be a people washed in His blood. Anything related to the world, it doesn't need to be on us or in us. Take it off. And excess naughtiness. Or other words, sinfulness that shouldn't be there. Get rid of it. And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Again, he's talking to people who are saved. And now he's talking about you have been um, given, or you're going to receive the crown of life and that God has chosen you of his own will. And now he says, receive with meekness this engrafted word which is able to save your souls. That's fascinating. He's talking to save people about something that can save them. Here, I think he's talking about if you take God's word meekly and being grafted in, this is like you can take a branch from one tree and cut it into another tree and it becomes part of that tree. But it can't grow without the main trunk. That's why Jesus says, you're the uh, branches, I'm the vine. I'm the main trunk. And if you're grafted into me, you can grow. You'll take my life force. This is what this is talking about. Let the word of God be built into you. Receive it with meekness, not with pride or arrogance, and it can save you from yourself. This is what the soul of it. This is not talking about salvation. It's talking about your life force. The Word of God is what can protect you from yourself. It's a beautiful picture. And then he says, and I may just read this and then spend more time on this part next week. And in light of all those 21 verses, be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. I'm going to pause there for today. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. If the Lord doesn't lead differently, that's what I'll pick up with next week. And I hope, this just a few chapters, maybe all of us could read the epistle of James this week. You could pray and you could say, Holy Spirit, what does it mean to be a doer of the word? That way you're not coming back cold or like you haven't thought about what's going to be preached. If we all come back and God has shown us a little bit about what He means, and then if I do preach on this, it'll be much more profitable. So prepare in that way if you would. That's the message.